It's Tuesday, October 13th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, the one and only Jason Moser. Good to see you. Good to see you. We have got a health giant in the headlines. We've got a stay-at-home stock that is on the rise, but we are going to start with the house that Mickey built. Shares of Disney up nearly 5% this morning after the company announced a reorganization that is going to prioritize streaming video. They're going to have three content groups, one for sports, one for general entertainment, one for movies, and the ongoing (coughs) challenge, for lack of a better word, I think it's fair to say, uh, and something that'll be interesting to watch is how Disney prioritizes what is the best platform for any given piece of content. Um, Bob Chapek, the CEO, was on CNBC yesterday after the market closed, talking with Julia Borston. And she asked him uh, a great question, which is essentially, uh, you you know, Disney's done very well uh, with sort of those big tentpole movies in the theaters. Are you changing that strategy? Are you, you know, she? I don't think she used the word abandon, but she may as well have said, you know, like, are you, <laughs> are you giving up on movie theaters in favor of the Disney Plus streaming service? Um, and uh, I, I loved his answer. Uh, he said, we're going to put the customer first, which, which basically means um, all options are open. Yeah, I, I really am glad you mentioned that because that my biggest takeaway from that was essentially, you know, his statement that the customer is ultimately going to guide their strategy. I mean, it, it, it really is. I mean, that's what it all boils down to. I mean, you're building a business. You're, you're, you're basically you're trying to give your customers what they want. I mean, in most cases, you know, you're not going to get out there and just tell your customers what they want and then deliver it to them. You, you find out what your customers want, and then you build around that. And, and, um, and I think I think that's the right way to look at it from this perspective as well. I think that the you know, Disney for a long time has really been close to the ultimate direct consumer business, right? I mean, the, the the parks being such a big part of the business. I mean, that is as direct to consumer as, as it gets. You, you're living in that world for as long as you want to go there. Um, and, and so, I like this move here. I like the focus. Streaming is obviously not some kind of fad. I mean, this is really the new model for distribution. Um, and, and so, to see that they are arranging or reorganizing their business to really focus on that, I think, makes a lot of sense. Um, it, you know, you you mentioned something that I think really keys in on the challenges there, and it's figuring out which platform gets which content. And and I think it's a very tough strategy in their case to figure out how to marry Disney Plus with ESPN Plus with Hulu and whatever else they may come up with, because they are three distinct platforms that offer three dis- distinct experiences. And I think probably the one thing that you could argue that they're not as focused on yet that they need to focus on is is a little the content beyond you know the younger consumer right the kids i mean that's disney plus is an awesome platform for the kids uh, Hulu is getting there. I think the FX acquisition um, was a step in that in that direction. I think having FX on your platform is a step in that direction. I think as as they continue to build out the platform and bring more content for all age groups, it, it'll become a little bit more apparent. But but knowing that they're really going to be focusing on this, delivering the content directly to the consumer. I, I mean, cable is. Dying. I mean, it may take a little while, but the numbers don't lie. I mean, ESPN is losing subscribers via cable, but that doesn't mean ESPN has to lose subscribers. They just have to, you know, get them a different way. Instead, of, instead of dealing with cable, they're going to be delivering that content directly to consumers. I think it makes a lot of sense. It's going to give them uh, more data with which they can measure. 
to determine what consumers want and, and how they want it delivered, whether that's in uh, kids TV or a you know, adult content, whatever it may be, FX or sports, um, a, a lot of different ways they can go with it. And, um, and I think it makes a lot of sense. I want to go back to Chapik for a second, because um, I, I, I was thinking over the last 24 hours about Tim Cook, um, because Apple's got their event later today. Tim Cook will be there, on, presumably, to unveil the new iPhone 73 or whatever number they're up to now. And, <laughs> you know, obviously, Tim Cook had enormous shoes to fill when he became CEO. Um, so maybe that's not an apt comparison. Maybe a better one is someone like Craig uh, Jelinek at Costco um, taking over for Jim Sinegal, uh, also a giant in the retail industry. Um, where I'm going with this is. It took a while. It took a few years in the case of both Jelinek and Tim Cook for us as investors, for the business media in general, to stop thinking about the last CEO and start thinking of, okay, this person is now not just new to the corner office. It's their company now. Yeah. At the other end of the spectrum, you have someone like Satya Nadella, who we, like, the moves he made in the first 12 months of being CEO of Microsoft uh, in his very quiet, because he's not a guy who beats his chest, but it was very clear, like, this is Nadella's company now. This is no longer Steve Ballmer's company. This is Nadella's company. Disney is now Bob Chapek's. And I say that with nothing but respect for Bob Iger. But with this reorganization, Bob Chapek is basically saying, I'm in charge. This This is where we are going from here. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, this really is going to this is going to be his identity. Probably, this may just be his identity as as the head of Disney for his entire time there. I mean, this is really a big deal. I mean, I, you know, we we always talk about. I mean, when we talk about streaming. Of course, the conversation always begins, and, and rightly so. I think with Netflix. I mean, Netflix really is is the company that spearheaded this entire movement, and and so it's always you know you always look to Netflix and think, okay. What can Disney do to emulate the success that Netflix has has uh, witnessed to date? I mean, Disney has three times the revenue of Netflix. Uh, in, in normal times, it's it's more profitable. I mean, it's got multiple revenue streams, complementary businesses that support one another. So, why does the market value Netflix uh, more highly than Disney? I mean, Netflix is a bigger company by market cap. And you know, I, I think uh, it, it was interesting. I put out a poll this morning on on Twitter, just you know, not, not scientific by any means, but it's just it's to get a basic idea of how people view this stuff. And the poll essentially was like, all things being equal, if the subscription prices were exactly the same, and you had a subscription to Netflix or you had a subscription to the Disney Plus, ESPN Plus, Hulu bundle, which one would you choose? And you know the, the numbers actually fall out about 50-50 right now at about a thousand votes. It's about 50-50. A little bit in favor of Netflix though. And I think that what that speaks to, it's not necessarily always about getting more for your money. I mean, most people would probably guess, oh well, the Disney bundle would win because you're getting so much more. Yeah, you know that's not necessarily the case because what is Netflix's advantage that they've really exploited to this date? It's distribution. And and I think that what they did is is they 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 
produced this seamless distribution that consumers just fell in love with early on. It makes a lot of sense. And you can see challenges on the Disney side, particularly on Hulu. And I say this as a Hulu user and I like Hulu. They need to improve, I think, the interface a little bit more. It needs to become a little bit more uh, user-friendly in some ways. And I'm sure they could get in there and mimic Netflix to a degree like that. Um, but, but I think that you know what they need to do is they need to look at a lot of the things that Netflix has done and say, okay, there are places where we can we can imitate. Maybe we don't have to copy directly, but there's a blueprint there for how to do this. And, and, and I think that as time goes on, I mean, I think it'll prove wise that they're basically separating the distribution from the content side. Because, I mean, when you look at the numbers at the end of the day, and we talk about this diverse, diversified revenue stream, but but in in 2019, parks and in in whatnot accounted for about 25 billion dollars of the company's close to 70 billion dollars in revenue, and so what that gets at is that content is a big driver for this business. That's not something new, but it makes a lot of sense that they're really focused on this. And, and, and Chapik did note that the the pandemic didn't change the strategy. As, as with many companies, it just accelerated the strategy. And so, I think you know, you're going to see them really working hard on trying to nail down the distribution side of this thing. Because I think the one place where, where Disney as a company has an advantage over Netflix is on the content side. Because they have so much IP, right? So much of that intellectual property, they can build content uh, off of so many different storylines and characters. There is the potential there. Um, and, and so, I think this is going to be something that gets their full attention. This will probably end up being JPEG's legacy as, as Disney's CEO. And if he continues to use following what the consumer wants as his North Star, I mean, I feel like you have to like his chances, right? I mean, this is not a zero-sum game. It's it, The question I posed on Twitter, it's silly from the perspective of, listen, we probably all in the room have a subscription to Disney and to Netflix. And, and that'll probably be the case for most people, because those are two of the most powerful platforms up there. Uh, but, but certainly understand why they are placing their bets on this part of the business. And, and I suspect they will do very well with it. But it's going to take hard work, and it's going to take some time. Third quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected for Johnson and Johnson, and that good financial news took a back seat to the headline that Johnson and Johnson has paused its late stage COVID nineteen vaccine trial because one of the participants in the trial experienced, and I'm quoting here, an adverse event. Which I mean, come on, and. Uh, the Minnesota Vikings experienced an adverse event the other night, and it was Russell Wilson marching down the field. This is, uh, you know, a human being getting sick. Um, so yeah. it was it was right for Johnson and Johnson to pause the trial. Um, obviously, um, we'll see where that goes. In the meantime, um, you know, a, a really solid quarter. Yeah, it was a solid quarter, and certainly not to belittle the 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 one. Uh, individuals' unknown health event. I mean, this is something that is very part and parcel with this um, part of the business, right? I mean, uh, developing vaccines requires a, a lot of time, a lot of trial and error, and, and you run into things like this. So, this is fairly common for this to happen. Um, there, there's still plenty they don't know in regard to this because they're still blinded from from the uh, from the the uh, perspective of, of the actual testing. Like, there's there's a lot of stuff they go in there they just don't really know. Um, so I, I I wouldn't look at that as something that really I you know I don't I don't think that's something you really got to hold against Johnson and Johnson. I mean, that's something that 
everybody's going to be dealing with just like we're all dealing with uh you know this this pandemic economy unfortunately um but but the core business itself i mean continues to keep on doing what it's always been doing i mean sales up 1.7% adjusted earnings up 3.5% uh they have seen some recovery in medical devices which makes a lot of sense i mean a lot of a lot of those uh, procedures were put on hold uh for a while in order to deal with uh capacity issues um they continue to see growth in consumer health and strength in pharmaceuticals and it's the pharmaceuticals business, which is um, that, that that really is, I think, the biggest growth opportunity for the for the company. But I personally am a big fan also of the investments they've been making in the medical device business, uh, particularly because they continue to focus on um, it, technology and, and specifically things like immersive technology. And and, and I think that's going to be something where we see more. Investment made in the healthcare space as time goes on. Um, you know, it was funny. I saw on a on, on the call, uh, not not the earnings call, but a, a, an investor presentation. You know, they talk about you know one of the strengths of Johnson and Johnson. You get brands like Tylenol and Listerine and whatnot in there that probably just uh, are, are in virtually every household. Um, you hear more and more just this talk about pantry stuffing. And I, you know, I mean that that brings a lot of success forward for some of these businesses. Um, I don't know. When I hear pantry stuffing, it just to me it sounds like it could be a pretty killer Thanksgiving dish. And, and given that we're just <laughs> a little over a month away, I'm starting to get some ideas running through my head. But maybe that's a conversation for the next McCormick earnings. <laughs> I, I think that with Johnson Johnson, you understand why you own this stock. It's not a stock that's going to double. It's it's not a stock that's going to be some big high flyer in this big growth environment. They they are a a strong sort of stalwart type company. Distributed $2.7 billion to shareholders and uh, dividends. That was in line with a 6.3% dividend increase they announced in April. This is a dividend aristocrat, and, and I think it remains a very sensible holding for folks that are just uh, looking for some stability in their portfolio. Absolutely. Uh, you know, this is Johnson & Johnson on the short list of companies that raised their dividend this year. Yeah. Um, and uh, it really, you know, as you said, it's not. It, with all the growth we've seen in cloud stocks and that sort of thing, it's a stock down a little bit today. It's still up around 15% over the past 12 months. And this is, this to me, I know there was a stretch in time where IBM was sort of the, the go to big blue chip dividend payer. That if, you know, that's the first place you look if you're looking for that kind of stability in your portfolio. I think it's Johnson and Johnson now. I mean, I think this is number one on the list for, for people who are. Who are looking for that? I, I think you're right, and I think the one thing—I mean, the language that they use—I mean, they, they they refer to their dividend as a quote unquote top priority. I mean, I don't think that's going to change. But the nice thing with Johnson and Johnson versus something like an IBM is. I mean, healthcare—it's a bit more of a resilient market. They're not necessarily beholden to the same sort of hamster wheel of innovation that that tech has always um, always played with in in certain in certain cases. So, you know, the healthcare market seems a bit more reliable. And and you look at Johnson and Johnson, similar to Disney, in the sense that they have that diversified revenue stream with a number of different ways they make their money. Um, You know, I thought it was interesting with Disney. I mean, we saw a couple of uh, a couple of days ago or something. Was it Loeb? Uh, capital or whatever they they were critical of of Disney paying the dividend and wanted Disney to cut the dividend and I mean I you know listen I, everybody's got an opinion I I think that's just extremely short sighted thinking I wouldn't do it I wouldn't cave if I was management at Disney um, I mean they paid out three point one billion dollars in total dividends over the last twelve months in the context of seventy billion dollars in revenue I mean listen we'll get past the pandemic at some point I mean I think you you keep the dividend where it is maybe you don't grow it um, 
but but with Johnson and Johnson, I think they have a little bit more of a luxury in in that the market they pursue will enable them to to keep that dividend a top priority. Shares of Ethan Allen up 12% this morning after the furniture retailer raised guidance for the first quarter. They're expecting a profit. They report on October 29th. I'm not trying to knock them, Jason, but I just I I look at this and I understand why the stock is moving the way it is today. And look, they're in a business where, um, in this environment, Ethan Allen should be thriving. That said, this is still a really small company. I mean, it's just over four hundred million dollars in market cap. Um, I think there's some brand equity there, but part of me looks at this and thinks. Is Ethan Allen going to be acquired by someone? Because I could see this brand thriving under a much larger umbrella in a way that, frankly, it just hasn't as a standalone public company. It's possible it could be acquired. I don't know. I mean, I, I they 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 refer to themselves in their 10K as a vertically integrated luxury furniture company, and I mean that's that's a mouthful, I know, but essentially. I, I, I maybe I don't know. It's really difficult to say. I mean, it, it, let's take a look at sort of um, the direction things are headed, right? I mean, going into today, if you look at the five-year charts for Wayfair and for Ethan Allen, um, I, I mean, Wayfair is is up somewhere close to like seven hundred percent, six hundred eighty percent, like that. Ethan Allen's down like forty percent. I don't I don't think that's an accident. I mean, this company's been treading water since two thousand and twelve. The stock stock hasn't really. Uh, been been all of that um, all of that much of a gem because the top line has just been treading water and hadn't gone anywhere and so maybe this release today things are less bad than we probably would have assumed they would be but I mean when you look at their most recently reported quarter I mean at, at the time they had to furlough seventy percent of the workforce now they've been able to bring some of those folks back but this is a company that still very much relies on the physical shopping experience and and I, I just if there are some players in that space that are doing well. I mean, Restoration Hardware, RH, I guess they call themselves now, seems to have been able to, to make it through okay, which is still somewhat confounding to me, but, but you know, hey, it is what it is, I suppose. Um, I, I, it, to me, Ethan Allen just feels like a legacy furniture company, and, and I just can't get past the fact that every time I hear the name Ethan Allen, my mind goes directly to back when I was seven years old and I got plunked in front of the TV to watch the prices right for an hour uh, you know while, while you know my mom was was getting stuff done around the house I mean I Ethan Allen just it, it feels like that kind of a legacy furniture maker I'm not sure it's as relevant today because of of partly the business model and, and maybe partly because of the brand I just don't know that people necessarily place the same value in that in that brand uh, when it comes to furniture as as, as they did you know a, a lifetime ago but again i mean it, you got to give them some credit for really dealing with what is a very difficult situation well i'm glad you mentioned restoration hardware because that to me is an even better comparison than wayfair uh, because it's much more of the traditional bricks and mortar furniture retailer, luxury furniture retailer. And that's a stock that has nearly quadrupled over the last five years. So <laughs> yeah. there is a way to make this business work. Yeah. Um, you know, again, good for Ethan Allen for having the day that they're having, but there's there's nothing about that business once I start to dig into it that makes me think, okay, this I, I think I want to put this on my watch list now. Um, no, I mean it it strikes me honestly that Ethan Allen could be 
that they may be better off trying to figure out a way to join that Wayfair network. I mean, ultimately, Wayfair is just, it's like a network, right? They just connect all of these suppliers um, around the country with, with consumers. I mean, I, I think it makes sense for Ethan Allen to try to figure out ways to expand their business and maybe get beyond that vertical integration. Vertical integration, I think, is far more crucial for a tech company that's focused on protecting its IP versus a furniture maker that, you know, listen, let's be, I don't know that IP is really ruling, ruling the roost there when it comes to furniture. Um, real quick before we wrap up, because uh, on Mondays you host the uh, financials episode of Industry Focus. Yeah. Uh, we got the big banks reporting this week. I know I haven't listened to it yet, but I know um, you and Matt Frankel discussed this on Monday's episode. Give me the 30 second preview of what investors like me should be looking for this week out of the big banks. Yeah, I, I think it's really you know you, you see this um, this this low interest rate environment, which is obviously challenging for a lot of banks. Um, the bigger banks that are very consumer facing um, that don't necessarily have those investment operations that you might find in something like a J.P. Morgan or a Gold, Golden uh, Golden Golden Slacks, as they call it, Golden Sachs. Um, I, I think watching sort of that that dichotomy right between the, the consumer side and, and the investing side, the investment side, um, is something to keep an eye on for sure. And um, again, I mean, just how, how are these how are these banks dealing with reserves? I mean, it's just a very difficult time for a lot of a lot of uh, participants in the economy and these big banks have to be very aware of the fact they need to be conserving. So uh, it, you know it's it's gonna be a, a fascinating earnings season for sure. All right. If you're not already listening to Industry Focus, check it out. You can subscribe with one click of the button, and it's free. Uh, Jason Moser, always good talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.